I'm going to read uh, a, some, some pages from this novel, uh, Map of Betrayal. And uh, the kernel of the story here, the, the novel, is, is based upon an actual event. Uh, in 1985, uh, when I came to the States uh, that year, I was a graduate student at Brandeis. And living in a graduate dorm, so there were a lot, a lot of Chinese grad students, a lot of visiting scholars. And then toward the end of the, I think late in the fall, uh, there was a big scandal, a big uh, scandal uh, in, in the news. Uh, a Chinese man, uh, in fact, Chinese American man, <laughs> who worked in CIA, was arrested as a, a top spy for China, and. Because he, I think he was at the time he was he had worked for China as a spy for so many years. He was, I think, was the most the highest ranking uh, spy in China. Uh, he was a vice a vice minister for uh, national security, a very big uh, job. And so, as a result, we all thought he would be swamped back to China, uh, uh, repatriated, uh, maybe with the uh, exchange uh, for other spies, US spies, uh, jailed in China. But it turned out that China denied to have any connection with him. And uh, he committed suicide, killed himself in prison. And so there was a huge shock to me. And that event stayed with me. And so when, after decades, and more than two decades, I thought about this, uh, still it bothered me. And <clears throat> so I began to think how to write uh, this book. And because if you work on a historical novel, it, the basic principle is you must make it relevant to the current situation, to our time. So for me, that is the difficult part. That's why I decided on uh, to build, to create another line of the narrative, that is the daughter's narrative. But I really took advantage of the situation that his files were not, were still uh, unacceptable to the public. So that means there's a lot of room, there was a lot of room for, uh, for my creation. And uh, for instance, I, I, don't, I don't know or uh, how many children he had, uh, whether they, they, he had a daughter, I, I'm not sure. Uh, but he had children. But the, I think uh, when he was before he went to trial, uh, he asked he did, the, the government to keep the children, the family, uh, out of the process, uh, because also he he was a top spy really in uh, the CIA. So he. His archives are not open, so as a result, a lot of inner workings are not uh, uh, cannot be examined. So that really gave me a lot of freedom, uh, in a way, uh, to create this uh, 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 story. But, but the starting point for still for for a long time, I didn't know where to start. Then there was a huge Chinese, uh, very successful Chinese TV show. It's called Chevu. Uh, underground work, something like that, <laughs> about a spy story working <laughs> for the communists. 
And when the nationalists, they were uh, retreating from China, uh, he was forced to live with them. At the time, he was just married. His wife was about to give birth to the first child. But the, basically, the, 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 uh, both sides, the Chinese, the communists basically wanted him to leave. And the Nazis took him away. Uh, so the series, the, movie, the TV play drama ends at the point where the, uh, the wife was alone in the countryside, uh, about to uh, uh, give birth to the child. And then, uh, right after that, the guy married another woman. The husband married another woman in Taiwan because of his work. Uh, need this kind of protection. So in, you know, in, as you know, in China, uh, any a major TV drama like that, it would go through very uh, uh, vigorous censorship. So that means this ending to the government, to the officials, was absolutely acceptable. So I think my wife, when, when uh, my wife saw that, saw, watched the the drama, she was very angry <laughs> because, you know, right, the wife was giving birth at the, when, while the man married another man <laughs> with the excuse of uh, revolutionary work that was justified. So that gave me an idea that this is the place official, uh, officially accepted the spot. And that is where I, I could start uh, uh, the novel. That's why they begin with uh, his <coughs> leaving uh, departure from China, and then the daughter went returned to China. So there is a, this kind of uh, two line starts together. But this kind of narr narr narrative structure, in fact, is a, a one of the most difficult uh, narrative pattern in, in the art of uh, the novel, um, because. Usually, you have to start. The two stories must start at the same time. They would uh, intertwine uh, and uh, along the way, but ultimately, the two lines must merge together as one story. That's the difficult part. I think the most, to my knowledge, the most most successful novel of this kind uh, is *Heat and Dust* by Ruth Jabavala. Uh, that's a great. Technically, it's a perfect book. Uh, I learned a lot from that, uh, from that novel, a lot. Of course, I made uh, changes uh, to the structure. Uh, uh, but I think ultimately it should be uh, almost everything depends on whether the two story, two lines can come together. So I'm going to read from that spot uh, when uh, the story starts with the meeting uh, with the uh, the protagonist's former mistress, and ends with that, basically, uh, as well. <coughs> and there are a few, uh, there are few, uh, I, a few names I should explain. Uh, uh, the narrator is Lillian. Uh, she is the uh, Gary, Gary Shawn, the, uh, the spy's daughter. And uh, later, uh, Gary Shawn's grandson, uh, that is Lillian's nephew, uh, was also sent to the state as a minor, uh, minor technical spy. Uh, so the man uh, and uh, the man's under, in fact, under surveillance uh, by the uh, FBI. 
Um, but he knew that he would be arrested at any moment, but he didn't know what to do. So um, Lilia and Dan and the band decided to uh, go to uh, to visit uh, uh, Gary's former mistress in Montreal, so that they can discover the truth uh, about uh, um, their. Gary Gary's uh, uh, arrest and his service to China, and uh, so now they arrived uh, uh, at uh, at Montreal, and we checked out of the motel the next morning, and drove into the city. It took just fifteen minutes to get to Chinatown. I like Montreal for its easy traffic. After parking in an outside lot, we headed to Saint Urban Street, where Kang Fang was. That's the restaurant they agreed where they agreed to meet. No sooner had we sat down at a corner table than Susie appeared using a cane that had a thin leather strap attached to it. She was much frailer and more bent than ten months before. And might have suffered from rheumatism and osteoporosis. Ben and I stood. He drew up a chair, and we sat her down. I hung her cane on the back of the chair. She took out a Kleenex, Kleenex, and blew her nose. She tried to smile, but her effort only made her face look sickly. Her eyes were watery. The lower lids. A little swollen, I said. Are you under the weather, Susie? No, it's just the withdrawal symptoms. Withdrawal from what? I asked. Caffeine. I just quit coffee. Why did you do that? The thought came to me that she might not have many years to live. I want to put my life together again. Have you been dating someone? I asked in earnest. Get out of here, she cackled. I quit sex long ago. I just want to live longer. When I was young, I thought I'd die before sixty, and I wouldn't mind that as long as I was happy when I was alive. But since I turned sixty, somehow the older I get, the longer I want to live. Guess I've got greedy. That's natural, I said. Life has become more precious to you. What a smart girl! That's why I like you much better than your mom. Ben poured up, poured her a cup of jasmine tea, and said, "Here, drink this, Grand Aunt. You feel better." Indeed, a few swallows later, she returned to normal, relaxed with her legs folded under under her. She grinned, and her face creased, showing a coating of makeup. She glanced sideways at Ben, blinking her eyes, which had lost their almond shape, and were almost triangular now. She's handsome like your dad, she said about Ben. You bet, I agreed. He's also smart like him. We ordered lunch. Susie wanted only a bowl of wontons. Saying she wasn't hungry and was happy just to see us, indeed she'd been beaming nonstop. We resumed making small talk.
When our food had come, I said to Susie, "One question has been on my mind since we last met: How come my dad left her diary with you?" Gary had a feeling that something bad might happen to him. He told me to say nothing about his career, a secret profession, to the investigators. Just play the fool and deny knowing anything. He wanted me to keep the diary and let nobody know of its existence. He had a sixth sense for danger. He wanted you to pass it on to me. He said nothing like that, but I assumed that would be his intention. Also, the diary could have become criminal evidence, so he wouldn't. Wanted the FBI get hold of them. Grand Aunt Susie, Ben joined in. One thing I can't figure out about my granddad: why did he kill、uh, kill himself? There must have been ways China would rescue him. Baloney! China dumped him. She said, twisting her mouth a little. I got a note from Gary after he was in custody. He asked me to go to Beijing and beg Deng Xiaoping to swap some imprisoned U.S. spies for him. You received a letter from him? I was so surprised that I put down my soup spoon. Yes, it came to me through the mail. How could he send you the letter from prison? Ben asked. It's beyond me too. Guess there must have been secret a secret agent. Who smuggled the letter out of jail and dropped it into the mailbox, or someone who visited Gary might have brought it out for him. In any event, the letter reached me without a glitch, so I went to Hong Kong right away and got in touch with Bing Wen, Bing Wen,、uh, Gary's、uh, handler, who helped me cross the border into China. In Beijing, I asked some officials to help me speak to Deng Xiaoping to speak to Deng Xiaoping personally. Did you get to? Again, I was taken aback. Of course not. There was this man named Ding, a big shot in the Ministry of National Security. He received me in his office, but no matter how I begged, they wouldn't try to rescue Gary. Ben put in. That must have been Hao Ding, the Minister of National Security. He was in charge of China's intelligence service in the eighties. What did he tell you, Granddad, Grandaunt? She said his country had nothing to do with Gary Shang anymore. To them, Gary was a traitor, a blackmailer. Being told me, he just、uh, being told me, he just. Extorted seventy thousand dollars from our country. He wanted money for his、uh, his wife, who who opened a, who wanted to purchase a, a a bakery. Because at the time Gary was planning to return to China, he wanted some kind of small security for his wife. That's why he he demanded the Chinese government、uh, send the money to him.、Uh, they sent it right away、uh, because they thought he was recruiting others. Uh, Ding told me he just extorted seventy thousand dollars from our country. What kind of money is that? Let me give you an idea. I make only twenty hundred dollars a month. 
That's 30 years salary for me. Another man jumped in. Gary Shang got rich in the US. He was rolling in cash and always drove a Buick. But he was corrupted by capitalism, greedy like a snake that wants to swallow an elephant. The, man, uh, the same man went on to say that Gary even had a bourgeois disease because anyone who ate coarse grains and vegetables every day wouldn't suffer from diabetes. I realized there was no way I could reason with them, so I again I asked to see Deng Xiaoping in person. They laughed in my face, saying I was out of my senses, and that Chairman Deng had no time for such a trifle. I got furious and yelled at them. Seeing me destroyed, Ding revealed to me, to tell you the truth, there's no need to make such a futile attempt anymore. Chairman Deng was well informed of Gary Shang's case and already gave instructions. Let that selfish man rot in an American prison, together with his city dream of being loyal to both countries. So Gary Shang blew his chance, and the case is closed. Nobody can help him anymore. Those were the final words I got from them. Then you came back and told my father that, I asked. No, I wasn't a family member and couldn't go to the jailhouse to see him. Someone else must have passed the message on to him. I cannot believe this, Ben said, stupefied. He held the rank of a major general. A general is also a soldier, I told him. Soldiers are all expendable. Everybody is, Susie agreed. I have another question for you, Susie, I said. Okay, go ahead. This might be personal and embarrassing, but I need to ask, why was my father so fond of you? Was it because of your common racial, cultural background? Or simply because you were good in bed? Or something else? To be honest, I don't think you were superior to my mother in every way. Susie smirked uh, complacently. Well, domesticity was never my thing, and I wasn't good at keeping a man happy at all. In the beginning, it was mostly mutual attraction, but bit by bit, Gary and I began to get along. When we were together, we could talk endlessly about everything. So for many years, an affair so after many years, an affair grew into a friendship in spite of all the quarrels we had. Besides, compared to Nelly, that's her, uh, Lillian's mother, be, compared to Nelly, I was more useful to him. In what way, I asked, despite knowing of her secret trip to, China, to Hong Kong and her failed attempt to look for Yu Feng, the first wife in China. Susie said, my uncle used to be a senior officer in Taiwan's intelligence service. That meant Gary could work for the nationalists at any time. I advised him to do that because if he was caught by the US government, he could identify himself as a spy working for Taipei. 
that uh, wouldn't make his would make his crime less serious because Taiwan was not an enemy country to the United States. In other words, I could be carried a secret safety net. Did he ever work for the nationalism? No, never. He was not a triple agent. He would not betray the mainland because he didn't want to endanger his family there. Also because he wasn't he wouldn't get me embroiled in the espionage business. For that I was grateful. He never took advantage of me and just remained a good friend, a real gentleman. Did you tell your uncle about Gary's true identity? Of course not. If the nationalists had known of that, they would have tipped off the CIA. So Gary and I were faithful to each other to the very end. Wasn't that remarkable? I nodded while he broke, she broke down sobbing. I glanced at Ben, who was teary too. And Susie, I murmured, thank you for loving and helping my father. You allowed us to understand him better. He was at least loyal and decent in his own way. I still miss him, she mumbled, wiping her wrinkled face with a red napkin, her cheeks streaked with makeup. After lunch, we, we sent Susie back to her apartment building, a kind of a senior home. Then we hit Express 10. Expressway 10 headed the east. Ben was passive, reticent, while I was driving. When we began cruising, uh, cruising along with little traffic on the road, I asked him, do you think Minister Ding Hao had a point? I mean, as he said, your grandfather was a blackmailer. No, that was just an excuse. How come seventeen thousand dollars was a huge was a ton of money by Chinese standards then? It was a mere pittance in my grandfather's case. Remember what Chairman Mao said about him? This man is worth four armored divisions. An armored division has more than two hundred tanks. A single tank was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. But that was when Gary was still useful to them. True, they squeezed everything they could out of him. His case was a textbook example of stupidity and misjudgment. In a way, you can say it was his love for your mother that ruined him. What makes you say that? He got money for her fucking bakery. That was like blowing his identity on purpose. No professional spy would make such a dangerous move. How could he have got that lax? I'm not sure if he loved Nadi, but he must have meant to do right by her. After 20 years of living together, 25 years of living together, he must have developed some feelings for her. Now that he was going to leave America for good, he wanted to make, make sure she'd be able to survive without him around. You can call that love or honor, 
or a sense of responsibility, whichever name, it doesn't matter. What's essential is that he finally did something he felt right on his own and was willing to pay the price. Then look at me in astonishment. I added, don't you think my mother was also a victim? I can see that. Let me say this then. It was his decency that ruined him. Also because he was ignorant of the nefarious nature of the power that used and manipulated him. You mean China? Yes. What it did to your grandfather is evil. On the other hand, he allowed the country to take the moral high ground and to dictate his, how, to, how he lived his life. That's also a source of his tragedy. It wasn't that simple. How could he live uh, separate? How could he have separated himself from China, where he still had a good part of his family? That's another source of his tragedy. He couldn't exist alone. A law followed. I kept driving in silence. Ben seemed to be dozing off in the reclined passenger seat, but I suspected he was just deep in thought, trying to figure out a way out of his plight, so I remained wordless. It started a sprinkling, the beads of rain rattling on the windshield, and I flipped on the wipers, which began swishing monotonously. I had been driving 60 miles an hour following a tanker truck at a distance about 500 feet. As we were approaching Magog, Ben sat up, pulled a notepad out of his hip pocket, and scribbled on it. He, handed, he ripped off the page and handed it to me. Keep this, Aunt Lillian, he said. What is it? An email address and a password. From now on, we should communicate only through this account. I, or, I already set it up. You just leave a message for me in the draft folder whenever you want to reach me. After I read it, I will delete every word. You must do the same. We must leave nothing in the account after we have read a message. Why should we do that? This is a way to communicate without leaving any trace online. Email exchanges might not be safe. We just share the same account, known only to the two of us. Every time after you've read my message, delete the whole thing. Is this how you send intelligence to China? He chuckled. It's one of the methods. There are more complicated ways, like classified codes and encrypted facts. For you and me, this should be private enough. Evidently, he'd begun making arrangements. Without action, he might, uh, uh, whatever action he might take, it would be better than sitting tight with apprehension. So I didn't press him for details. Uh, after this, there's a short chapter in which 
and there is a communication between the and between aunt and the nephew, uh, but the band took really a very drastic act, and that also reflects another kind of betrayal. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I feel we are still in their story. It's uh, quite uh, suspenseful. And uh, I think it's, this can easily be turned into a movie or something. <laughs> or, or really, there's a sense of a cliffhanger there, even at the end of uh, this, after the meeting with Susie and uh, after Ben uh, disappears. Uh, it would probably be an American producer because, but again, you know, uh, China has a huge market for for movies. So as a result, any Chinese producer, they would, you know, aim for the Chinese market. So that means the any script must go through a a censorship. So at that point, uh, stage, everything by me will be stopped. Mm. <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm thinking of this as an American movie, not a, not yes, a Chinese movie. Yes, American movie, movie is yeah. fine, yes. Mm. But mm. it would have to be partly shot in China. That's the difficult part. Mm. See, waiting went through the same, the same process. Even it had changed the three generations of actors, three generations. Originally, they thought they would shoot uh, some scenes in Taiwan. They rented the place. Then they changed their mind. They would go to St. Petersburg. They also went to the place. Then the the, the director Peter Chen um, oh. moved to Hong Kong. Oh. So the whole his career changed. Basically, he only make movies for the Chinese market. So that's why the movie. So cannot. Peter Chen has has been planning on shooting. Uh, Everything he said. He still said. Waiting. Oh. Yeah, he oh. still says mm. at any moment I can start. Everything mm. is ready, but he. But whenever he submitted the, the, the uh, uh, proposal, mm -hmm. the, now the censorship department wouldn't, even, wouldn't look at it anymore. They wouldn't evaluate it anymore mm -hmm. because it, it was turned down so many times already. <laughs> so we hope some uh, wealthy students majored in media and <laughs> in the future, <laughs> maybe during the film started, yeah. perhaps we'll think of this, keep this in mind. And uh, uh, I think this novel is uh, really about three generations. Yes. Right? It's the first yeah. generation, uh, Sh uh, uh, Gary Shang, yeah. uh, he came to America uh, first, and uh, he didn't have a choice. Mm. He was sent here, yeah. and he was very reluctantly mm -hmm. coming here. This is the uncharted water for him, and yes. he had to be the person who uh, who, who, who who found a place who was really displaced and yes. needed to uh, really on the journey of finding him, his, his own self in mm. this new country. And the daughter was born here, daughter Lillian. Yeah. She was born here, and she, uh, if we said, if we see Gary did couldn't have uh, the opportunity to make a choice. Mm -hmm. uh, Lillian did not need to make a choice. Mm -hmm. She was born here, she was raised here, she was very much in this culture. Mm -hmm. When she went back to China, she looked at China through mm -hmm. uh, American yeah. ways. And she, through, under, 
through understanding her father, she also tries to understand herself mm -hmm. better in a certain way. But there's a, her father, the, this, mm -hmm. this is like a map yeah. for, for her to, 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 to look up. Yeah. And uh, that's not a map. That's not like the map of an uh, ideal map of a, uh, because it's called the novel title is a map of betrayal. Yeah. So it's not like a map of a reliable uh, truth, but rather a map that she needs to explore little by little, and yeah. she needs to find what is truth, what is mistruth, and what is the sources that she needs to uh, piece together to understand yeah. what really happened. And then the third generation, Ben, uh, the nephew, he seems to have repeated the the, the grandfather's uh, like his Ben is uh, Gary's grandfather, yeah. uh, grand grandson and uh, uh, Lillian's nephew. Yeah. Uh, so he he seems to have repeated the same path of yeah. uh, Gary, but uh, he in the beginning he thought he didn't have a choice, mm -hmm. but he's gradually by yeah. encountering mm -hmm. Lillian and uh, then Susie, mm -hmm. he could possibly make a choice. Then he also actually he's also looking at the map. Yes. So I'm thinking for this this mm. central image of a map and mm. the three protagonists mm. as the three travelers mm. uh, then checking on each other's life mm. and uh, life mm. routes or mm. journeys. Then is there anything you'd like to sure? Yeah, this? you know the English has the word map. This is very rich, you know, because it can be a, a big map, but it can be many other plans, other things around the map. But Chinese doesn't have such a word. We have the word D2, but it is basically geographical uh, 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 reference. But it doesn't have such a rich, short, rich, uh, uh, monosyllabic word. And so that's why the Chinese translation is something like a, a guide to to be true. A lot of people are angry. <laughs> this is not Chinese, right? Because you, it's, it's misleading. It's not the English. English, we, some people would suggest, you know, it should be like a Beipan Pintu, like something you piece together, uh, a different parts. But I think it's too current a word. I really, this book, really, there is a lot of things uh, emotionally, in fact, it's Asian. It's not just current. People, in fact, a lot of Chinese were blinded by this kind of Asian emotion, patriotic emotion. And so I think that only, a, so in that sense, a guide might be better because all the different generations, they have the map, but there must be a single, some rules that lead to a, to the source, uh, the source of betrayal. That is the power that be, right, the state. So in that sense, I think it is perfectly justified mm -hmm. as a guide. Mm. So in the Chinese translation, actually, it's yeah. done by Tang Lao Shi. Yes. The Chinese translation was, uh, was, was titled Bei Pan Zhi Nan, yes. uh, which can be translated as a, a guide, guide to, to betrayal. Yes. Yeah. Because in Chinese, yes. the, the, the word for map doesn't yeah. have such a rich uh, yes. meaning. For but in, in English, you have a big map here. But each person might have his or her own map in that. But all return to the matter map the big map. Mm -hmm. the, the really the betrayal, the thought of betrayal, I think, is the state, the country. But is there a sense of a guiding? Uh, yeah. You think uh, yes. it's a, you, the, the second generation needs some guidance? Yes. And, uh, but what, what is, 
actually, you know, between generations, what sort of heritage, what sort of guidance are uh, passed? In, in case of Lillian, she has to go to China to discover her siblings. Uh, she met her, uh, her half-sister, but her brother died of hunger. That's a big fact, because at that time, the father was really a, a, a high official. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, his son died, they were, uh, were starved to death. And uh, also, uh, he, she went to the countryside, she found her half-sister, and see how the, these people were treated. They were not totally abused, but they were uh, uh, deceived. They were manipulated. Uh, but they were helped at a different stage as well. Uh, but the terror, uh, betrayal, uh, accompanied their life. Uh, and uh, for the third generation, I think Ban eventually would have to see how his father was betrayed. Then he could act. So the, the final act, basically, for him, I think it's justified. He began to think of his own life because he realized his father was abandoned and there was no loyalty to speak of between the state and the, the individual. So in that sense, there was a guy. You see, the process mm -hmm. to discover the truth, the facts. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, this novel has a time frame of uh, more than 60 years. Yes. And uh, really crosses centuries and across mm -hmm. uh, cultures, across these mm -hmm. continents. and. Uh, uh, just the time span is, uh, is the longest one that you have had in your writings. Yes. Uh, uh, d d does this make writing this novel different or difficult for you, uh, structurally? Or? Yes, uh, the, because, because the, the time, see the two-line narrative, if you manage them well, each line basically can convey the passage of time. For instance, when you tell a story, you know, you describe uh, the person on a trip to see a dentist, but on the way, he was stopped by a friend, they have a conversation. And then you can talk about the return from the trip. You don't have to describe the, what happened in the dentist's office. So there is a kind, of, yeah, otherwise, when you use this kind of narrative, the patch of time can be conveyed by the, the intersection of the, uh, of the two lines. So that's why uh, I had to plan very well so that when the other, the same line resumed after another chapter, the, the middle chapter, the in-between in chapter, uh, basically provide to indicate the passage of time. So as a result, I think it was convincingly uh, conveyed. That's the part of, a very difficult part in writing fiction, to convey the, uh, the passage of time convincingly. So the two lines really help this. That's why uh, really I, I have to let the two lines go basically at the same pace. And uh, uh, Lilian, this, uh, uh, she's uh, the narrator of uh, half of the novel, right? Mm -hmm. the, all the chapters about her uh, mm -hmm. and Ben, the yeah. her life is uh, narrated from her perspective. Mm -hmm. um, she seems to be very calm. And yeah. uh, and though uh, 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 so we can de detect occasionally some emotional turbulences, mm -hmm. when, for example, when she first met Susan, tried to defend her mother, yeah. or when she was riding the boat with Ben, that yeah. there's a moment of uh, mm -hmm. some affinity like yeah. uh, uh, between them. 
uh, but other than that, she's not showing that. She's, a, she's more like the, the mediator, mm -hmm. uh, and she's a person uh, bring together the, the, the two generations of the Chinese spies' mm -hmm. stories. And, uh, and uh, just could, could you tell us how you uh, came to characterize this person narrator uh, in this way, low-key, calm, and mm -hmm. uh, completely drama-free, and mm -hmm. almost completely drama-free, I think. That's you know, I think because she is a professor, history professor, so that means she's very rational. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can you, can, you know, emotionally very dependable. Uh, I, also, I think there is also modesty. That is the important part on her, uh, you know, on her side. Uh, because she is not into uh, to investigating her own uh, story, but try to find out what happened to her, her father and her father's first family. And in the in fact, I gave her a lot of drama already. People mm -hmm. tend to complain. Some people would say, you know, it's too quiet. She's too quiet. Uh, she's not didn't act. But in fact, in the novel by. Ruth Jabwala, Hidden Dust, the narrator, the current narrator doesn't even have a name. Mm -hmm. She because she said, This is not my story. This is the Olivia's story. The older woman, the the older woman's story. So I think in that case Lillian really has for for me I think she did a lot already. Mm -hmm. I think there is a she in other words there should be kind of balance because Gary, that's very big. Yeah. So, but basically, I really basically serves her father in this case to really to clarify uh, his life uh, and discover the truth. So I don't think she can act too much at all. Mm -hmm. She had a name. She had a lot of views. I think that's important. Basically, she made persuaded. Ben, you know, <laughs> to mm -hmm. look at himself and his father, the family history, differently. Mm -hmm. Also, all the education Ben had received in China. Mm -hmm. He was trained by the government for many years as a, as a uh, in, uh, spying scientist. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think maybe perhaps we can open the floor to the audience. Any questions coming from? I think a more complex, I would say. But the book, in fact, uh, some chapters were sent to Okinawa, where you know, I've never been, but I read a lot. I look at a lot of photos. <laughs> uh, a lot of fiction, in fact, written by, uh, by the local writers so that I could have a sense of the, the texture of their life, details. Uh, for instance, they would mention uh, Satsuki grass, all the local things. Uh, the house would have black tiles. Uh, so I, I, I did that kind of work. But DC, I've been DC a few times, but it's still the, the good part of it is set there. That's a new place.
But emotionally, I think it's more, it is a departure from the previous. Uh, Ming Wei said very eloquently about the difference of this book uh, from uh, free life. Free life is more is pure by a young, purely a young, fresh immigrant right, who want to live uh, to become an American man in his own way, uh, try to make the use uh, of freedom, uh, try to embrace it with a lot of fear and uh, bravery. But in, I think Gary in this book, this is I think this is more meaningful to to the Chinese. I think especially that's why the Chinese translation is well received in the diaspora. Why in the mainland completely the the, the kept not, silent about it's not it. Not publishable. No, it's it wouldn't mention. Nobody would mention this book. So in that sense, really emotion is more resonant to a lot of people because this is a key, a major event, and a lot of Chinese still have the memory, and with all the Russian spies last year. They were swapped back to China and became celebrities. You see the difference. So the, the note, the, the you know, keeps the resonance keeps coming back to people's mind. So in that, in that sense, it is not an old book. It is very current. Yes. Okay. I, I think about but, but because Lillian was American, it would be very hard for her to you know adapt and but this yes, even strangers. A lot lot of Chinese people, people, you know, common people, they are very, a lot of them are very generous, in fact. I in fact there was a, a a student, a Chinese student who went to London to study and he was sick and an old man uh, helped him. And then he, he lived with the old man for some years. Then when the, the young man returned to China and the old man had a stroke, nobody uh, would take care of him, could take care of him. The, the young man took the old man back to China and uh, you know, basically lived with him as a family member. It happened in many places. Things like that happened. Events like that happened, and I think it is entirely possible. Yeah. I think, at least, I think they would accept. Even they could live together, they accept emotionally, mentally, uh, accept socially accept Lilia as a fam as a family. You know, because at the time I did my graduate work at Brandeis, and then I, I, my plan was to finish my uh, degree, doctorate, and then return to China. There was, I had a good job in China uh, uh, to, to teach at Shandong University. Uh, but then when I was finishing at Brandeis, the Tiananmen massacre happened, and uh, I was 
very outspoken uh, uh, here, uh, and so I couldn't have my passport renewed. And so I realized there was no way. In the near future, I couldn't go back. Then my son came out. He was six that year. Uh, it came to me, in fact, at the airport in San Francisco because he was not allowed to switch planes. Uh, we went to San Francisco to meet him, and, and then at that moment it occurred to me that he must be American. Because for me, there was a, at the time I was, I was angry uh, at the Chinese government. Uh, I, I envisioned a, a, a cycle of violence, uh, gratuitously, because all this kind of violence and bloodshed didn't serve any purpose. So I didn't want my son to be still to be caught in that cycle. Very simple. At the time, I thought he must be American. That means I would have to stay many years in the States. But I did mentally. I wasn't ready for for that because I plan to return to China. And then after I have after graduation, I had to look for for work. Basically, I couldn't find any work in uh, Chinese. My, all my degrees were in English. In fact, there was an opening at, at, at Wesley. I applied. I couldn't get close because a lot of applicants, they, you know, they have PhDs uh, in Chinese. <laughs> and so, you know, in the States, you might have, have professional training, certificate, just credit for that. So I couldn't get close. Uh, I couldn't work in a, low, in a Chinese restaurant. I always work in American restaurants. Because at the time, most restaurants were uh, run by Cantonese. Uh, they hire people who could speak the, the dialect, so they won't, it won't cause any confusion in that case among the employees. So that's basically a matter of survival. But it was not randomly decided. In fact, I thought a lot for a long time about whether I could write in English. Uh, because I had been studying poetry and literature, I knew there had been a, a grand tradition in the language in which some writers, uh, non-native speakers, uh, they, uh, with effort and uh, talent and luck, uh, became essential writers in the language, such as Conrad and Nabokov. So there was nothing new in this, in other words. So the road is there, but it's up to me uh, to, to, to see, you know, and uh, to try, and to see, to test whether I have the luck and the ability. Uh, so that was basically the, the major reason. Of course, there was a lot of pain and suffering, a lot of uncertainty. But at some point, Frank Bedard at, at, at Wesley, we, he used to teach at Emory, at, at Brandeis as well. So we worked together. So uh, he helped me a lot, uh, you know, because I, I started with poetry. Uh, one day I, I figured out, I told him, uh, that there, certainty is not a human condition. That, that's what I said. In fact, later I would say, you know, uncertainty is the price you pay for freedom. Uh, at the time, she said, "You're right. You know, you have to think. You have to take some risk." So, after a year, I decided to write in English. Of course, over the, in the beginning, I was very aggressive because I have to suppress Chinese. I was a professor in the English department. Any publication in Chinese would not count. Very basic. You know, how to focus. How to <laughs> be very dedicated to to, pub, to publishing in English. And, but gradually, I think as I'm getting older and you know, having written more books, I, I realize. But I, I often, I, even when I was writing 
in English exclusively, I would always emphasize my work would be very meaningful to the Chinese. Translatability would be the standard of my, my work. So I, I never, never, I had never changed that position. In other words, I never break, like I have never broken from, from Chinese. And so that's why lately I began to write uh, poems in Chinese. And I think it was a, a, another step. But that doesn't mean I abandon English, because I would, would rewrite some of the poems in English. A question from this. Yeah, like some people say language is, under, uh, is a way of thinking. So mm -hmm. like in this novel, the map mm -hmm. of betrayal, there's mm -hmm. three generations, like mm -hmm. the, the Gary Chan, mm -hmm. the first generation, obviously he was a Chinese, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, his daughter, mm -hmm. so I was, just, uh, I was just wondering, like what's your mindset? Like you want to express the story in English, obviously, but there's so many uh, Chinese elements in the yeah. story. Sure. So how, like how, I mean like, uh, what's your mindset of like uh, creating this story or in the Chinese way of thinking or in a like English way of thinking? Like how do you convey those Chinese elements in in a English way? Yeah, I, I think yes. Of course, the language effect you use affects your writing, your perception, sensibility a lot. But that doesn't mean a story can be uh, uh, cannot be translated, right? A lot of things, uh, a lot of things. In fact, there are a lot, a lot of words and the things, and they're entirely transparent. So that means I I have to figure out to what degree the Chinese elements should be brought into English because. I, I'm working in English. I have to have an abstract sense of the English year, how much the English year can absorb, can uh, and can take this. I can't put all the Chinese for the. For instance, if you talk talk about the Chinese idiom, a phrase, it doesn't have the echo in English, so you can't do that, right? So that's why I have to. Basically, it's only case by case. I can decide. There's no no uh, principle. Uh, the only principle is translatability. So in other words, I, when I write English, I try to use the resources in Chinese to make the English slightly different. In other words, try to enrich it a little bit. I've been working on poetry. I, I understand the principle uh, the uh, poetry. That is ultimately a poet's value. Is the, is judged by what you can add, you can contribute to the language. So that was I was always aware of that. That's that's an important part. But I can't abuse this freedom. I can, if you bring in too much, you lay it over and over all the Chinese stuff. It just you ruin everything. And so, very often people say this is not standard English. This is no, we wouldn't read this. A lot of Chinese because they learn English, they want to learn standard English. But I didn't intend to write standard English. So that's the situation. But when I write in Chinese, I would reverse this. I would think about you know the, very often I, I couldn't find the right word. I would you know go go around a detour uh, from English because every language has its own. You know, blind corner spots or some secret space. Uh, so for me, that is a more precious resource. English can be used as a resource. Uh, so I, in other words, I, I, as a writer, in fact, I exist in between 
the two languages. <laughs> You have another question? Yeah. Oh. Sorry. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, most of the books about Chinese, com contemporary Chinese history, I was mm -hmm. wondering, like, are you planning to write about, like, non-history, Asian history of Chinese, uh, Chinese stories, and also, like, some more Americanized stories? Like, is, is that part of your future plan, and what might be the future direction? I'm not sure, you know, because my wife has been very ill in recent years. It's very hard for me to inhabit a, a novel project. So that's why I began to write uh, poetry. And I think I will write less fiction. I would write more poetry. I think that is my first love, in fact. I really I want to write. But this is a different, a different project because originally, to last, last winter, not this winter, last winter, I began to write some drafts in Chinese, and then I thought I would rewrite them in English to make finished poems. But once I began writing in Chinese, I, I realized this was not right, because these should be finished poems in Chinese. So that's why I began to write uh, poems very rapidly. Uh, uh, basically, I wrote a book of poems uh, last year. And but what happened, I think the, I was a little bit rushed, honestly, because I was afraid. Because you know, this is new, new ground. Uh, whether I could go, how far I could go, I was, I was, I was unsure. Uh, but English, to write poetry in English was not a big uncertainty. Because poetry is harder uh, than, than novel. You must have all the weight of the language with you. But I could have that, all the weight of Chinese with me. I do have that. I have a lot of certainty when I write poetry. So that is a, a big discovery for me. So I realized I could use this as a base, try to be a poet in both languages. That's the, so that's a, see there, are, you have to figure out the way, how to survive, find a new space, a new uh, way out of your predicament. I think, I think there, you know, people very often say, uh, you know, the guy can't write about contemporary current China anymore. In a way, it's true, special small things, details. Because I was prevented from returning to China for three decades. So there was a sinister effort try to suppress you uh, as a creative writer, to make you less relevant. So that's why I'm writing in Chinese. I don't need to know, you know the noise in China to write good poetry. Uh, so basically, it's kind of another adaption to my own circumstances. And for English, you know, there are, English is more, more, I think it's more rigorous, the editing process. You always have one editor, and then you go to the copy editor. Uh, in my, my case, I, my feeling is always the copy editor can do a lot. The copy editor will say, you know, maybe this word you should uh, uh, replace by another, or cut the comma, something like that. Mechanical, basically mechanical things. My editor, I work with different editors, many, in fact, because in early, my first five books were all published by small presses. So I went to, I worked with several editors. Nowadays, it's very hard, very hard to find an editor who can do a lot of things. 
for you. So impossible. That's why people would go to uh, writers' workshops. But that's why you learn how to edit your manuscript. And I, I really think, I think the copy editor would do a lot, uh, not the, the, the my, uh, editor. Editor usually would say, maybe, I think I remember free life. What's much bigger than that? Uh, let me give you an example of how the editor basically works. I think she told me, cut 100 pages. That's all. <laughs> 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 so originally, very big, huge manuscript. Uh, manuscript. Of course, I don't, I'm, I'm not pleased by that, because I always hope the editor can do more. But the editor has their own schedules. Uh, so it's the same editor for, uh, for this book. She, she went over the manuscript, but she didn't suggest anything. But her assistant uh, he took a degree, uh, had a degree in creative writing. So <laughs> that helped a lot. So it really it depends on luck, depends on luck. For me, I think the best editor, I think, was, a, 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 I think she, he might have passed away, I think, many years ago, uh, Charles East, uh, who used to run the, the Flannery O'Connor Prize for short fiction. He ran the, that series. And uh, my second book of fiction, Under the Red Flag, won that prize. So we began to work on the manuscript. I worked very hard on it. Then one day, I sent it to him. He added the manuscript um, with two and a half pages suggestions. I felt very embarrassed. <laughs> so when we talked on the phone, I said, you know, I worked so hard, still there were things to fix. He, and he said, don't feel bad about this. This is the first time I gave more than less than ten pages of <laughs> suggestions. <laughs> that that is for me that's a really enlightening moment. That means with effort uh, I, I could produce a, a polished manuscript that gave me a lot, a lot of confidence. I think that he is the, really he was a short story writer, so he was the the, be, uh, the best editor I had, have had. <laughs> I think we, we have time for just one last question. Uh, you raise your hand. I really, uh, in fact, we talked about this before the, the, the uh, uh, this before the event, and really, I, you know, when you sign a contract with a publisher, there's always time limit. When you write a book, you don't have that, but for for translation, you must deliver within a few months. So I was teaching, I would have other things. It was it was impossible. Luckily, you know, so that's why I very often I ask others to translate and. For this book, for instance, I didn't know Tang uh, Chu uh, at all. And I saw her translations of Carver, Raymond Carver and Jupiter Lahiri in Chinese publications. So then I discovered she was in Wesley. But I had no knew it for a long time. I said, did you know this person? <laughs> That's my wife. So that's how I made the connection. So, but once that start, uh, when, when then the, so then you can't start. You should, you can't ask people to start a project until the book is actually purchased by a foreign publisher. Mm 
because you can't let people work on it without being paid. So that's very important. So, but once the book was bought, and there was very only a few months usually, and you know you have to finish the project within a short period of time. So, but Chu Yan worked work very hard on it. I usually she I think she would send a, a, a several chapters to me. I would uh, go over it uh, and send them back. Mingwei also read because he writes fiction too. So he, uh, he I think uh, I, I I was confident. I was very confident in you know in my. Uh, uh, with I, I, for this book because I knew it was in good hands, capable hands. But the, I think there was one part, waiting really was uh, uh, the guy Jin Liang, he translated three of my books. He, before that he never translated anything. Uh, but I found that there were, I saw his article on waiting, I, I thought there was a strength and a peculiar rhythm in, in, in the writing. So I asked him, he was really loved the work, but he got free, really. <laughs> he was really, he, he, he put in his own EDMs here, and there, there was a lot. So, so that I had to restrain him and uh, talk to him. Uh, and, but, but on the whole, I'm grateful to all the translators, really. And within that span of a t period of time, they really did their best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.